Welcome to the Kotki Ride Home for Friday, October 23rd, 2020. I'm Jackson Bird. Do Venus flytraps have a short-term memory? A new interactive database of every life form that's ever gone into space from Earth. A bar in Seattle that has made a pandemic-safe pinball machine. And Burger King is getting in on the zero-waste game with reusable containers. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. Further evidence has emerged that the Venus flytrap has something akin to a short-term memory. Because it wouldn't be Halloween without learning about the potential sentience of a carnivorous plant. Scientists have long known that the Venus flytrap possesses some type of mechanism to determine whether the object they've captured is indeed prey to be dined upon or something inedible. And something like a short-term memory has been tossed around as a hypothesis in the past, but a recent study published in the journal Nature has shed more light on the idea. But first, a quick overview of how the plant captures its food. The Venus flytrap attracts prey with its fruity scent, or by performing a haunting R&B number in a soulful baritone asking its prey to feed me. And when its prey, usually an insect, not a skid row florist or sadistic dentist, lands on one of its leaves that stimulates a trigger on the hairs that line the leaf. Quoting Ars Technica, When the pressure becomes strong enough to bend those hairs, the plant will snap its leaves shut and trap the insect inside. Long cilia grab and hold the insect in place, much like fingers, as the plant begins to secrete digestive juices. The insect is digested slowly over 5 to 12 days, after which the trap reopens, releasing the dried-out husk of the insect into the wind. End quote. In 2016, German scientists determined that the Venus flytraps are able to essentially count how many times something touches those hair-lined leaves, which helps it distinguish what the object is. It usually waits until an object hits its leaves a second time before snapping its trap shut, but it doesn't gobble its prey right away. The hairs have to be triggered three more times, helping it gauge the size, nutritional content, and fortitude of the prey, aka how much it might fight back. The researchers called this a kind of cost-benefit analysis the Venus flytrap performs to decide if various prey are worth the effort, and if they decide it's not worth it, they'll let the prisoner go within 12 hours. Beyond that, they also have a chitin receptor, chitin being the main component in many insects' exoskeletons. And if chitin is detected, the plant starts producing more digestive enzymes to prepare for its meal. But chitin aside, the number of stimuli the plant counts implies there's some type of short-term memory at play here. Previous research has speculated that the key is concentrations of calcium ion, but they haven't had a way to confirm that without damaging the hair-lined leaves of the plants. Until now. Quoting Ars Technica, A Japanese team figured out how to introduce a gene for a calcium sensor protein called GCAMP6, which glows green whenever it binds to calcium. That green fluorescence allowed the team to visually track the changes in calcium concentrations in response to stimulating the plant's sensitive hairs without a needle. The results supported the hypothesis that the first stimulus triggers the release of calcium, but the concentration doesn't reach the critical threshold that signals the trap to close without a second influx of calcium from a second stimulus. That second stimulus has to occur within 30 seconds, however, since the calcium concentrations decrease over time. 
If it takes longer than 30 seconds between the first and second stimuli, the trap won't close. So the waxing and waning of calcium concentrations in the leaf cells really do seem to serve as a kind of short-term memory for the Venus flytrap. End quote. 30 seconds or so probably isn't long enough for the Venus flytrap to plot a scheme for total world domination, however, so this is just all-around good news. Always cool to learn more about how these mysterious plants work, and we don't have to fear any Audrey 2 wannabes. Earlier this week, outer space-focused media outlet Supercluster launched the Astronaut Database, which they say is the first complete record or library of every single living being that has ever flown to space. So humans, animals, fungi, and sort of breaking with the living definition here, also robots and mannequins. And like most of Supercluster's products, it's really well-designed, both aesthetically and in terms of UX. There are a number of different sort and filter options. You can search by life form, by mission, by nation, and you can sort by launch order, days in space, etc. And with each entry that you click on, you get some basic information, like for an astronaut, you'll get some of their stats, a brief biography, and links to the different missions that they've been on. So it can be cool to click around and just get lost in the web of missions and people and animals. A few fun things that I've learned on the database so far... Of the top 10 humans that have spent the most time in space, all but one are Russian. The other one is Peggy Whitson, an American who has spent 665 days in space across three missions. And while the U.S. didn't send a woman to space until Sally Ride in 1983, the Soviet Union sent Valentina Tereshkova on a mission in 1963, making her the first woman to fly to space. Outside of people, some of the weird life forms that have been sent to space include tardigrades, lichen, guppies, a jellyfish, lots of frogs, 3,400 bees, 1,400 crickets, four ladybugs, and some yeast. And finally, because it's Halloween season, and I at least didn't remember this happening, the U.S. sent a bat into space in 2009 on the STS-119. Turns out this wasn't on purpose, though. Quoting NASA, A bat that was clinging to Space Shuttle Discovery's external fuel tank during the countdown to launch remained with the spacecraft as it cleared the tower, analysts at NASA's Kennedy Space Center concluded. Based on images and video, a wildlife expert who provides support to the center said the small creature was a free-tail bat that had likely had a broken left wing and some problem with its right shoulder or wrist. The animal likely perished quickly during Discovery's climb into orbit. Because the Merritt Island National Wildlife Refuge coexists inside Kennedy Space Center, the launch pads have a number of measures available, including warning sirens to deter birds and other creatures from getting too close. The launch team also uses radar to watch for birds before shuttle liftoff. Nevertheless, the bat stayed in place and it was seen changing positions from time to time. End quote. And it clung on through the start of launch, but probably got shaken off shortly after and unfortunately burned up by the exhaust. Still, some say the bat was technically the first ever in space. And a quick note on the astronaut database, a few people on Reddit have already pointed out errors, and Supercluster themselves admitted to some incorrect data on their podcast, so hopefully they will continue to edit and correct things. It did, after all, just launch a few days ago, and is quite an ambitious undertaking. 
but you may want to cross-check your sources for a while. That said, if you're just using it for fun, it's pretty cool to poke around on, and you can also access it on your phone via the Supercluster app. Hey, Cricket customers, Max with ads is included with your Cricket $60 unlimited plan at no additional cost. Nice! Max is the streaming platform where you can watch Scoob, Meg 2 The Trench, The Nightmare on Elm Street Collection, and so much more. Remember me. Just log in with your Cricket username and password to experience Max on all your favorite devices. We've never seen this before. Max, the one to watch for a good scream with Cricket. Yeah! Phone plan streams and standard definition. Programming subject to change. Fees, terms, and restrictions apply. See cricketwireless.com for details. A Seattle arcade has invented a new kind of pinball machine, sort of. Add a Ball, a staple in the Fremont neighborhood for a decade, has the largest collection of vintage arcade games and pinball machines in Seattle. And they proactively closed in early March before city orders demanded them to, just out of precaution for their customers and community. And during that lockdown, one of the employees at Add a Ball, an employee who goes by the name Sleepy, came up with the idea to rejig their pinball machines so that you can play them with your feet, eliminating the need to sanitize the flipper buttons and plunger between every single player. Now, players can sit on a bar stool and use pedals beneath the machine to start the game, launch the balls, and control the flippers. Personally, I'm curious how they can expand on this, because while I think its utility for reducing transmission isn't that great, I mean, how tough is it to wipe down the buttons in between players, it does have really cool potential as a more accessible pinball machine for anyone who might require accommodations on the usual buttons. Pinball enthusiasts are big on modifications, so I could see a lot of folks trying this out on their own machines if Adaball wanted to share their method, you know, whether as a way to make people feel more comfortable visiting their venues or for accessibility reasons, if this hasn't already been done before. In any case, very cool move. It's been fun to see some of the more creative ideas coming out of bars and other small businesses during this tough time for them. In an apparent effort to start correcting for decades of single-use paper, plastic, and styrofoam waste from the fast food industry, Burger King has announced they're introducing reusable containers for drinks and burgers. Starting with a pilot program in New York City, Portland, and Tokyo next year, Burger King will give customers the option to get their Whoppers and beverages in reusable containers, which can then be returned to a collection box where they'll be cleaned and sterilized while the customer gets another set. At least as far as I can tell, it's kind of like getting another random plastic lunch tray from the cafeteria, not keeping your own reusable set like when you bring your own thermos to Starbucks. I might be wrong on that. The containers are made by Loop, a zero-waste platform that's been working with a coalition of major consumer product companies, including Haagen-Dazs, Pantene, Dove, and Axe, to create reusable containers for their products. They have a whole proposed system where people, after an initial deposit on their first order, would have their containers picked up and cleaned by someone else before being returned to them, filled, I think. Sounds like a lot of carbon waste to have these bottles picked up and re-delivered when someone could simply clean out their own containers and refill those. But, well, first of all, most products aren't available that way. You can't go to most stores and fill up your own container with shampoo. And second, Loop's whole goal is making reusable containers just as convenient as single-use ones. 
And I guess if this works as a first step to get more people and companies on board with reusing containers so that we can eventually transition to more zero-waste practices across the board, then that's pretty cool. And Loop did say that even with their whole pickup and redelivery rigmarole, quote, the total impact of the packaging is between 50 to 75% better for the environment than conventional alternatives, end quote. But as for Burger King, no need to worry about UPS picking up your Whopper box, just bring it with you the next time you return to Burger King, drop it in the collection box, and get another one if you want. You do pay a deposit for the containers each time, but you get it back when you return them. The materials and design of the containers have not been finalized just yet, but Burger King says their goal would be something durable enough to be reused at least a hundred times. And while we're on the note of fast food, be sure to check out the Kotke blog today to learn about McBroken, a new unofficial site a software engineer made that accurately tracks which McDonald's in your areas have broken ice cream machines. And one more space thing for you today. Keep an eye on NASA's site or social media on Monday because they've teased a, quote, exciting new discovery about the moon. I wouldn't expect anything too huge because as much as they tend to hype these things, these announcements tend to be fairly minor to the general public. But still, who knows? We'll find out on Monday. And that is it from me for today. I'm going to go read about why Russia sent so many tortoises into space. I hope you have a great weekend, and I will talk to you again on Monday.